Good morning to you all once again. So good to be together. So good to be worshiping Christ and singing songs of his grace and the peace that we have with God through him. My name is Jeff Schleter, and it's my joy to be a member of the pastoral team here, continuing our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. And so as we do and as we dive into the sermon this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. That is Mark 2, 13 through 17, a passage found in our ESV translation under the translator heading, Jesus Calls Levi. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Marcos capítulo 2, versículos 13 a 17. El título de la traducción dice, Jesús llama a Levi. And as we return to the gospel of Mark and we get our frame of reference back in this New Testament book, we are reminded that uh, this book is a book in the New Testament which serves to be somewhat of a written portrait of Jesus. I mean, Mark, our author, he is a storyteller, and he's written an account of Jesus' life and ministry in order for us to be brought into the story of Jesus and to be changed by the story of Jesus. Mark's aim is to answer the question, who is Jesus and what has he done? And this is the most important question we could ever ask because it's not, uh, the answer to it not only indicates how we would come into new life through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but how all of life, from the most mundane to the weightiest of matters, is transformed by the story of Jesus Christ. Everything is changed in relation to who he is and what he's done. And last Sunday, we entered into a story arc of conflict scenes in the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, from chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, verse 6, we have five different scenes in which Jesus experiences opposition of some kind or another as he advances his kingdom-bringing mission. And these stories, they they revolve around uh, some kind of surprising action of Jesus, which is met by critical questioning. And the questions that come forth in these scenes and the responses that follow, uh, we're challenged as a reader, as we are drawn into the hearts of Christ's critics, and we learn that uh, maybe more than we like to admit, our hearts are a lot like their hearts. But also, and even more than this, we're drawn as well into the heart of who Jesus is and the mission that he came to accomplish, which is better than we could have ever have imagined. And so, This morning, we're heading into the second of five conflict stories. And we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is, in fact, capable of bringing the kingdom near. He can defeat evil. He can undo the effects of the fall. And, as we learned last week, he can even forgive sins. It's clear. Jesus can bring the kingdom near. But the question remains to be answered in vivid narrative clarity. Just who then can draw near to the kingdom? In other words, is there a certain kind of person he's looking for? Are there any uh, sets of prerequisites that must first be met before one would come and enter this kingdom he's bringing? You might be asking this morning, am I the right sort of person? (laughs) Can someone like me really find a place in his kingdom? Or maybe more broadly, is there any line of limitation that exists as to who Jesus will let in to this kingdom? 
In Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, it answers this question of qualification with the definitive criteria for all who'd hope to enter the kingdom of God. What is this criteria? Well, without further ado, let's look to the text and to seek God's answer uh, on this most important of questions. Let's read God's word together and then pray and ask for God's help. So beginning in verse 13, Mark writes, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard of it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are God's word. We need the help of God's spirit. So let's pray to him now. Lord, we thank you for your word, which speaks to us your truth. We thank you for this written portrait of your son. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, that we would this morning see Jesus, that we would see his story, who he is, what he has done, what he's come to do, and that we would see this in such a way that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would be compelled by the realities that we encounter in this word. So fill us with your spirit to listen and apply these words. Fill me with your spirit to proclaim them. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Well, once a time ago when I was on a camping trip, my friends and I sat around the fire and we played a game called the Green Glass Room. Anybody heard of this game? Anybody? We played this game called the Green Glass Room. And it's a game in which the, the sole goal of the game is to enter into the green glass room. And to do so, you have to come to the door and state one thing you're bringing with you, and then one thing you are not or cannot bring with you. And if you correctly state the one thing you can bring and the one thing you can't bring, the narrator of the game will let you into the room. But if you can't, you're denied entry and you're back to the drawing board trying to figure out just how will I get in to the green glass room. And so we're playing this game, and my friends, I never played this before. This is an important part of the story. (laughs) My friends would say something like, well, I'm going to bring a burrito, but I won't bring a taco. Or, oh, I'm going to bring a kitten, but I won't bring a cat. And then they'd they'd get let into the room, and that would work. And I said, okay, uh, maybe I'm catching on to some sort of pattern or theme here. I'm bringing peanut butter, but I'm not bringing jelly. Huh? No. <laughs> okay, I'm bringing a calf, but I'm not bringing a cow. In, in anything there? <laughs> and I'd remain locked out <laughs> of the green glass room. And this went on. We're playing and playing for probably half an hour or more, and I'm trying to crack the code. What can I do to get let into this room? <laughs> but all my attempts <laughs> were frustrated, and nothing seemed to work. All my discerning of patterns, all of my best efforts to get into this room and we're sitting around the fire, uh, time is going, more and more of our group, of all the friends gathered, are getting into the room, but not me. Until finally, as 
probably, you know, through their laughing at me and their, you know, uh, and, you know, the jokes on me kind of thing. They're, come on, Jeff, they're really urging me to get it, and I'm just on the verge of it. And then finally, something clicked. I discerned the pattern. I learned the secret. All my efforts had gotten me nowhere so far, but just then, in that moment, I realized, as we sat around the fire, how I could get in. And here was the key. Double letters. Double letters. All the permissible items had double letters. Burrito, kitten, and it goes on. And all the inadmissible items just had a single non-repeating letter uh, for the other part of that pairing. And so, playing this game, once you realize this crucial piece of information, you were then, and I was then, freed. <laughs> from the frustration of not being able to enter this hypothetical room. <laughs> I could finally get in there. <laughs> you could now have fun uh, playing with other combinations of pairings while others around you were still trying to force their way into the green glass room. <laughs> this essential piece of knowledge, it changed everything <laughs> in that moment with this room. And this morning, in the text before us, <laughs> the kingdom of God is actually similar to this. There is an essential piece of knowledge we must come to realize if we ever hope to get in. It's the sole criteria for entry. And without it, you'll never be able to force your way in, no matter all your efforts or all your striving to enter the kingdom. And so what is this critical realization that we must have to enter into God's kingdom? Well, it's the answer to the question that we posed before we read the text. The question is, who is qualified to enter this kingdom? Think about this. Who is qualified? Is it the devout and ready, you know, John the Baptist types? Uh, the decent, hardworking, ordinary fishermen who seem to have their life pretty together? Uh, those who are, you know, just generally doing pretty well in life, they would be, you know, a good representative of Jesus. He would want to put this kind of person out in the world to say, hey, they identify with me. Um, or maybe, on the other hand, it's those who are particularly bad off, maybe a, a special class of acute sufferers, like the sick and the demon oppressed that Jesus came to heal. Perhaps God is out to pour out his divine compassion and blessing upon the poor of this world, who have it way worse perhaps than you or I. Is there a limitation on who can get in, a certain kind of people that Jesus is after? And the answer to this question is yes, but it may not be what you think it is. In answer to this question, who is qualified to enter the kingdom, we are met in Mark chapter 2 with the resounding reply, only those who know that they are not. Who is qualified to enter? Only those who know they aren't. This, church, is the key to entry because it directs us away from what we can do for ourselves to what the Savior has done for us. This is the key to enter. And the call of Levi and the meal with Jesus that follows, it illustrates this critical truth. Mark chapter 2 here, it demonstrates that the only ones who can enter the kingdom are those who, paradoxically, realize they cannot do so. Those who recognize that they have no rightful place in God's righteous kingdom. Those who come to terms with their own inability to earn their place in God's kingdom, to receive God's blessings, and experience God's forgiveness on the basis of anything in them or anything that they themselves could do. 
those who first come to the realization, the necessary realization, of their utter moral bankruptcy. And then, after that, receive the riches of Christ by grace, through faith, and faith alone. In, in the text, those who realize that they're uh, in, in this group of those who cannot, they're labeled sinners in the text. That's the group in reference here. Those who cannot, these unqualified persons, they're sinners. Sinners are those who are in need of a Savior, to put it shortly. These are the very ones, Mark chapter 2 tells us, that Jesus came for. The ones who know their deep need and who turn to him to have that need met. Even as we sang this morning, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Jesus came for those who knew their need, who felt that need, and who turned not to themselves, not to their efforts, not to their striving, but to him and his work to find entrance and to find place in God's kingdom. And so Mark chapter 2 then is about Jesus coming to welcome sinners. It's about him accepting men and women into his kingdom who realize that they themselves have no claim to a place in it. It's about him calling sinners to show us what kind of savior he is and even communing with sinners in order to show us what the fruit of his life, death, and resurrection will accomplish for us. And these two aspects of the text before us, they will serve as the outline for the rest of our time together today. The call of Levi and the subsequent uh, celebratory meal, they make it clear that point number one, Jesus came to call sinners. This is verses 13 through 14. And number two, that Jesus came to commune with sinners. Verses 15 through 17. Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus came to commune with sinners. And so, Diving into our first point, in Mark 2, uh, 13 through 14, Jesus calls the unqualified to come to him. He extends his welcome to the morally bankrupt Levi. And so the scene, it begins with Jesus' movement from the city uh, in Capernaum where he's been to a destination beside the sea. And as he goes out of the, uh, the city proper, the crowds, they go with him. <laughs> They're following after the man who's just claimed, in the text we read last week, to forgive sin and then backed up his words by healing a paralytic to prove he could do just that. And the crowd, they're, they're coming and they're probably asking questions like this of themselves. What will he do next? What is the next chapter in his story? What does this man, Jesus, uh, and what he's doing, what does it mean for me? And they're following after him. And as they come to him in wonder and in curiosity and maybe even uncertainty and all other kinds of states of mind and postures of hearts, he meets them with teaching, it says in verse 13. And Mark doesn't elaborate on the content of this teaching. He just says, and he was teaching them. Uh, but we know from what we've read already in the Gospel of Mark that we're meant to see that Jesus is here teaching again about the kingdom of God. He's teaching how the big story that God is writing through his people is being fulfilled in Jesus. How the hopes of the Old Testament are finding their satisfaction in Jesus. How the long-awaited kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. And what men and women must do in response to this reality. This is what he's teaching them. And as he's teaching of the kingdom beside the sea, he summons another into this kingdom. 
And as he does so, he explodes, church, the notion that the kingdom is reserved for the qualified. <laughs> he, his actions here, they insist upon the reality uh, that the only persons fit for this kingdom are those who know that they're not fit in the slightest for it. And so Mark, he says in verse 14, that as he passed by along the sea, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Jesus beholds Levi, who in uh, Matthew's gospel and Matthew's account is named Matthew. So Levi is Matthew. Um, and he's sitting in a lakeside customs post, collecting tax payment from those who passed along via road or via sea. Jesus comes and he sees and he beholds this tax collector, which um, tax collector is really another way of saying um, greedy and corrupt traitor of your people back in the ancient world if you were a Jewish person. This is a man who is part of the system, right? He's working for the oppressive Roman Empire that's keeping the Jewish people down. He is a bad guy, church, because back in that day, tax collectors, they weren't actually paid by the Romans for their work. They had to collect enough money from those who came through their booth uh, via a little extortion to make sure they met their ends um, and made them meet as well. And so Levi here is likely making his living as a tax collector by defrauding others, by stealing from them as they pass through his tax booth. And so really, in the New Testament, if you see tax collector come up in the Gospels, um, it's really shorthand for bad guy. <laughs> tax collector equals sinner. They represent greed, corruption, and they might as well be considered unbelievers because their manner of living is one that is unfaithful to God's commands day in and day out. And so, with that context in mind, what does Jesus do as he passes by this sinner? Well, he beholds this moral outcast, and he calls him to follow him. He issues the same command to him as he issued to the fisherman in chapter 1, verse 17, and says, follow me. And Levi, he responds in just the same way as those fishermen. He leaves behind his life and his story as he knew it at the moment of his call, and he responds to the grace of Christ with a faith that's expressed in his following Jesus. And so, in the latter part of verse 14, Mark records that he rose from the tax booth and he followed him. And at this moment, we're meant to go, wow, this out-and-out -out sinner of all people has just been called to follow Jesus and to be his disciple and to enter into the blessings of the kingdom. And the natural response that might bubble up in us is, really? Jesus, you want him? You want this guy? You couldn't have chosen anybody better than this to be one of your disciples, to advance your kingdom, to share your gospel? This is the guy you want for that job? This is the guy you want with you? But that's exactly the point of Mark. That's exactly what he's trying to advance here for us. There truly is none better than Levi. Should Jesus choose a tax collector or a fisherman or a member of the Jewish council to follow him? all would be firmly set in the category of sinner. If Jesus is calling anyone into his kingdom, he's calling a sinner who doesn't deserve it, no matter how rough or smooth around the edges they may appear to be. Because underneath, whatever exterior uh, is presenting to the world is the same rebellious heart toward God that must be addressed. 
beating within them that is just as deserving of judgment as the next person. And so the text here, it emphasizes that Jesus is calling a sinner right smack dab in the middle of his sin. And this is represented as Jesus comes into Levi's life, as it says in verse 14, as he is sitting at the tax booth. So think of this, he's kind of caught in the act. This is the place where it's all going down. And this is where Jesus comes and he calls him. The place where Levi worked for the corrupt and oppressive Roman Empire, this tax booth. The place where he defrauded and exploited his own people for his own gain. The place where he engaged in breaking God's law and rebelling against his commands day after day after day. Jesus encounters Levi in this place and he preaches the gospel to him there. He meets him where he's at in the midst of his rebellion and tells him the good news that there's a way for a man even like him to be forgiven of his sin, to be reconciled to God. Jesus comes to tell him that he's bringing the kingdom of God, which above else means forgiving the sins of the people of God. He passes by Levi that day. He tells him of this kingdom and of all the blessings therein, and then he calls him into it. He summons this sinner to come and to receive the blessings of God's redemptive reign. And in that moment, being so called by the powerful grace of God, it says, Levi rose out of the tax booth, out of his former manner of life, even more out of his deadness in sin, and he entered into life with God through his son, Jesus. He leaves sin behind, and he shows his faith as he follows after the Savior. And what we're meant to see here in the way that Mark is telling the story is that in Levi's case, right now, his prerequisites are zero <laughs> when Jesus comes to call him. He was imminently unqualified to enter into life with God. But grace came to him. Right smack dab in the middle of his sin, he was summoned into Christ's kingdom. He didn't have the time, the opportunity, or even necessarily before Christ called him, the desire to go and clean himself up first, to turn his life around, to start tipping the scales of righteousness in the better direction first. No, Jesus came and he confronted him with the good news of the gospel. He had no qualifications met. Christ and his grace received through faith was everything for Levi. Levi did not, as we, we sing earlier, he did not tarry till he was better. He did not tarry before coming to Christ. He didn't wait. He came as he was called in the thick of his sin and received the Savior. And he exemplifies that following truth from verse 4 that we've already mentioned. That all the fitness we require is to feel and to know our need for him. And the grace of God that was given to Levi that day uh, through Jesus, it's, it still works in the same way today, church. Jesus is still calling Levi's to do 180s in life to leave sin and all the empty promises and all the, the pleasures that are fleeting, uh, that are wrapped up in sin behind, and to come and to embrace the Savior, to receive his better promises, to receive his eternal joy that, that's found in he and he alone. And so this morning, to those who have never trusted in, in Christ before, know that like Levi, Jesus can receive you, and he can forgive you without you, knew, without you needing to do anything prior to whittle down your list of items in your life that need to be forgiven. He can come and do this without your penance, without you cleaning yourself up first, without you lightening his forgiving load in any way. 
He's not on the lookout for those who are already living a good life, who are headed in the right direction, who just need a little extra dose of grace to get to that place of acceptability before God. He's not just out looking for the sick and the suffering. He's looking for the sinner. He's looking for those who aren't looking for him. He's looking for those who are dead in sin, like Lazarus in the tomb, and he's calling them to come to life. And so, this morning, if you hear his call, don't wait until you're better to come. Come now to Christ with faith that he will receive you and he will forgive you. He's able and he's willing to embrace you, to give rest to your soul. He can remove the burden of your moral guilt and shame because he bore that guilt and shame on the cross for you. Come to Christ today, just as Levi did. And unless we think, reading Levi's account here, that maybe still somehow this is not the case, that Levi was exceptional in this regard, as if Jesus still came to call mostly decent, mostly the kind of people who had their lives somewhat together, uh, you know, mostly good folks, um, and that this welcome of Levi is exceptional, and maybe the, the offer to us doesn't stand quite the same. Um, this call to Levi here in the text is followed by Jesus welcoming a whole host of sinners. Even more, uh, he comes to add to his number that he calls uh, from sin into life with him. And this brings us to our second point. First was that Jesus came to call sinners. Second is that Jesus came to commune with sinners. This is verses 15 through 17. And in these verses here, these two verses, or three actually, the unqualified, they come to Jesus and he shares himself with them. The bankrupt, they come and receive the riches of Christ. And this truth is represented to us in the text here uh, in the form of a common meal, which serves as an illustration of sinners receiving the blessings of the kingdom through Christ. And so, Verse 15, it, it tells us that Jesus was reclined at the table in his house, that his refers to Levi, it's Levi's house. And we see here that after his call, Levi celebrated by hosting a banquet in his house, in Jesus' honor, and he invited all his friends to come and meet Jesus. So excited, so overflowing with joy uh, that he couldn't contain it. Jesus had come into his life in such a way that his life was now changed and he responds by throwing a party, by celebrating what Christ has done for him in the forgiveness of his sins and the acceptance into his kingdom. And he throws a party so that all his friends can come meet Jesus. And so not only did Jesus in this receive this sinner and call him, he then ups the ante by entering a sinner's home, which you didn't do back in the day. And then not only that, partying, as it were, with a whole bunch of other sinners. So Jesus just dump, jumps right in here. This is not something a rabbi, a respectable, righteous man would do back in that time. And so Mark tells us that Jesus, he reclines at the table for a meal, which is how you ate back in the day. You kind of got to lay down on your side and really lounge while you ate. It seems like it might be a choking hazard, but <laughs> also relaxing at the same time. But Jesus and his disciples, they're reclining around Levi's table in the house of a sinner with a party of sinners and they're eating together. They're joined by, verse 15 says, many tax collectors and sinners. For there were many who, just like Levi, followed Jesus. 
So just try to imagine this dinner party. Try to imagine who's gathered here, that Christ is coming, he's welcoming, he's hanging out with, he's having a meal with public, well-known sinners back in that day. People who prior to his call were living a clearly ungodly life. What a crew this must have been. The tax collectors and wrongdoers of their day were gathered around Jesus, the Holy One of God, the perfectly righteous Son. And so we think about it in their day, but maybe let's try to think about it in our day. What kind of people would be gathered around this table today? These people could be the gang members, drug dealers, and addicts of various kinds who have now come to Christ. These people could be the aggressive atheists who vehemently and vigorously deny God's existence, but now come around the table of his son. It could be those who are part of a cultural movement to reject God's design for, for sex or gender or sexuality, family, you name it. Part of a, a movement to do away with what he has set up in his word for our flourishing. This group could include those who had had abortions, who had participated in the industry of abortion. It could be those who hated those who were different from them and looked down upon another culture or ethnicity as inferior. Those who had been unfaithful to their families, unfaithful in their relationships. The gossips, the greedy, those who cared only for their selfish gain, and on and on. That the point here of how Mark is describing this scene is for us to think of the person in our mind who would seem to be the least likely candidate to ever come to Christ. And then to understand that Mark chapter 2 is telling us that these are just the kind of people who were coming to Christ that day. Think about that. What kind of person in your mind would be the least likely person to come to Christ? And maybe for you, it was you before he called you and before you came. But these are the kind of people who are gathered around Jesus, who he's meeting at the table, who he's sharing himself with. These are those he's reclining with around this table. And this is very significant in the ancient world that he would have a meal with these kind of people. Because back in the day, sharing a meal, it was, it was loaded up with all sorts of meaning. Uh, if, if it was a surprise that Christ would call sinners to be his disciples, it was a downright scandal, church, that he would eat with them and share a meal. And so what was the big deal about eating a meal with somebody back in the day? It's that eating a meal was perceived as a very intimate and personal sort of act that you didn't just do with everyone. It wasn't a common thing. You didn't just eat with anybody. You didn't eat with somebody back then unless you were willing to identify with that person, to say that these are my people. Who you ate with, it illustrated who you belonged with, who your community was. And we can think of the, those cafeteria scenes, right, in like a high school movie, you know, where the new kid is, is coming in and trying to find a place to eat lunch. <laughs> and he's looking for a table anywhere. And as he gazes around the room, every lunch table is not just a table, <laughs> but it's a particular social unit, right, in the school. It's a particular clique or club or group of kids. There's, you know, the jocks and the cheerleaders, the chess club kids and the skaters and the punks and the theater people, the preppy kids, uh, you know, the kids from this cultural group or this language as their primary language, and, and so on. The new kid sees every table, but it's not just a table. It's a community embodied and represented. And so as he looks out for an empty seat, he's not just looking for an empty seat. 
and as the group tells him, hey, the seat's taken, <laughs> or they just ignore him, um, or they downright glare at him as he passes by to consider taking a seat at their table, he realizes <laughs> that to take a seat is not just to join the table, but it's to join the community. It's to join the group of those that he is eating with. There's a, sign a significance wrapped up in who's sitting around this table. And that new kid, unfortunately, won't receive acceptance at the table until he's been accepted by the community there. And so, as with this high school stereotype, so with the ancient world. Acceptance at the table meant acceptance into the community. A common meal signified common identity. And because of this, back in Jesus' day, you wouldn't want to knowingly associate yourself with sinners. You didn't want to keep company with those who were known to be unfaithful to God's law, who had the reputation of an ungodly lifestyle, and who probably, to top it off, were ceremonially unclean as it regarded the Jewish commandments. If you were concerned with living righteously, you wouldn't want to signal to the world around you, these are my people, the sinners, that they're mine. For this would signal that you condoned their unrighteousness, and by association, were unrighteous yourself. Yet, Jesus did just that. He, the holy and righteous Son of God, the kingdom bringer, ate with those who could not lay one deserving claim to inherit the blessings of his kingdom, who could not produce one defensible reason why they should receive God's grace and not his judgment. Jesus is willing to identify with these sinners in fellowship because they've identified with him by faith. Mark recounts in verse 15 that these, just like Levi, they followed him, the expression of their trust and their faith in Christ, the one who was bringing the kingdom. And so Jesus, he welcomes the sinners around the table, and his action, it scandalizes the moral in-crowd of the day. Verse 16 says that, and the scribes of the Pharisees, and remember them from, their, from the story last week. They had another question for Christ when he forgave the paralytic. It says, The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with such people? And just like last week, this question, this critical question of Christ, becomes the launching point for Jesus to step in and give an answer that would shed even greater light on who he is and what he's come to do, that would shine a brighter focus on the nature of his mission. And so, in the current scene, the scribes, once again, they ask, why? Why does he eat with this kind of people? Why would he choose to welcome them into fellowship and communion with himself? What kind of rabbi, and even more, what sort of person who might be the Messiah, would do such a thing. And, and perhaps even further, though this is unstated in the text, maybe they're thinking, why them? When we, the righteous ones, we were available. He could have invited us. We would have come. But he didn't call us. The question regarding Jesus' scandalous meal, it makes his way, its way back to him. And then he takes us into the heart of his motivation for eating with such people. They say, Jesus... For what purpose and for what reason would you eat with them? And he responds in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, 
he provides an analogy for the scribes to help them understand his purpose in receiving the sinners. And, and the idea is this. He's offering an analogy of, of the sick seeking medical treatment. He says that those who are sick, uh, he says first that those who are not sick don't go to the doctor. Why would they? It's not necessary. But, he says, those who are sick, they seek the physician's remedy. They realize, first and foremost, that they are sick, and because of this, they seek to be made healthy. And as such, they go to the doctor. That makes sense, right? They come because they realize their condition, and then they come to entrust themselves to a doctor who can do for them what they can't do for themselves. And as they come to the doctor, he doesn't cast them out because they're sick, but receives them precisely because of their sickness. That's what doctors do. They receive the sick because they're sick, and they meet them with a cure, with a remedy, with treatment. And so the upshot of Jesus' analogy here is that you wouldn't fault a physician for treating the sick. It is his purpose. And in just the same way, they shouldn't and we shouldn't stumble over Christ's reception of sinners. For as he himself says, he came not to call the righteous, that is, those who are well, but sinners, those who are sick and who know it and who come to Christ seeking the cure for their sin to be found in him. And so, as he comes for sinners, they come uh, to him like sick patients seeking the doctor's care. He calls them as sinners, and they come to him as sinners who realize their desperate need before God, who understand the terminal diagnosis of sin and the judgment from God that it rightly deserves. And they make no pretensions about their health, about their fitness. <laughs> they don't strive to get better on their own and try some you know, home remedies they find online. But they come to Jesus for salvation, just like the sick come to a doctor for a cure. They understand that God's kingdom has come in Christ, and they know full well they deserve nothing from this king but judgment. Yet, they come to Jesus, and he receives them, and he even eats with them. And this takes us into the very heart of the gospel. For as Jerome Barr's uh, scholar and author says, really, fellowship with sinners, this is the gospel. There is no other gospel of Jesus Christ than that he would come and bring sinners into fellowship with himself. And the question is, how is this fellowship made possible? How can God, the righteous one, receive the unrighteous? How can Jesus eat with sinners? And the answer is that it's because he's looking ahead to the cross where he'd die for sinners. So consider this. In the Old Testament sacrificial system that we read about in the Bible, the worshiper ate a meal with God after atonement with sin or for sin had been made. In, in other words, in the Old Testament, we see this picture with peace being established first through sacrifice and then fellowship being enjoyed on the other side of that atonement when the worshiper would eat and drink with God, would have a meal in his presence, would experience his peace. And in the case of Christ and his fellowship with sinners, this principle is also in play. He's not welcoming them into his presence and then looking the other way on their sin. Um, he is welcoming them into their presence as he's looking ahead to the cross, where he would atone 
for their sin. There, he will establish peace between God and man by taking the penalty for our rebellion upon himself. In a great exchange, the punishment for our sin would be accounted to Jesus upon the cross, and the perfect righteousness of Christ's life would be counted to us through faith. Jesus, church, he would take on the fullness of our debt and credit our bankrupt balances with the riches of his perfect righteousness. The righteousness that would come and be received as a gift, not as something earned or deserved, but as a free gift to all who would come to Christ by faith. And coming to Christ in faith, we'd be united to him by faith. And in this union, we would come to share all that he has, just like you'd share the, the, the elements of a meal. And Christ sitting there at that table, sharing this meal, passing this plate, <laughs> passing the pitcher of water, opening himself up to fellowship with sinners, it's a picture of him coming to share his status of righteousness, to share his place as God's son, to share his holiness, so that we could come and stand before God in peace, with songs of gratefulness, with joy, not judgment being what awaits us. He came to share himself with us, and that's represented as he shares a meal at this table. He can receive sinners because he'll satisfy God's judgment for sin upon the cross, the place where he'll decisively deal with sin, the place where he'll grant the righteousness that's required to live before God to, to those who desperately need it. Church, he's not a savior who looks the other way on sin uh, when welcoming sinners. But instead, he looks at it straight in the face, and he does something about it. And so, how should we respond then to the good news of this gospel, to the good news of the gospel that is fellowship with sinners? And before we go, there's four responses I want us to uh, keep in mind, and we'll aim to be brief with these four responses. But number one, and we've said this already, but it bears repeating, <laughs> it must be heard, Number one, come as you are and come now. Come to Christ. In light of this good news of the gospel of the welcome to sinners, we should respond, if we haven't before, by coming to Christ and coming now. Knowing that, like Levi or any of the others around the table, that you have as well, that we all have, fallen short of God's righteous standards. That we've lived a life in which we failed to love and obey him fully but that Christ has come to complete uh, all that we've failed to do. He's come to perfectly love and obey God. He's come to perfectly pay the debt for our sin against God. He's come to give us the fullness of his obedience. Everything in him that has been pleasing to the Father, he'll give to us, not because we earn it or deserve it, or we add any of our own effort toward it, but because it's a gift of his grace to us. If you've never come to Christ, do so today. There's no need to delay. Mark 2 makes this clear to us, doesn't it? Nothing that we need to do to make ourselves eligible first. All he requires is for us to feel our need for him and to turn to Jesus, to turn to him to meet that need. To say, Lord, I've come to realize I'm a sinner and I don't deserve your kingdom. I know I need to be saved from the consequences of my sin and I believe that you can save me. That on the cross, you paid for my sin, and in your resurrection, you proved that that penalty had been paid in full. And so I come. 
I don't trust in anything I could add to this work, anything I could do to deserve it. But totally in you to bring me peace with God. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Come and be freed from the burden of earning your way into God's kingdom and receive the gift of Christ's righteousness, which qualifies you to enjoy every blessing and every benefit of his reign. Number two, we come and we are to seek the cure, but don't celebrate the sickness. <laughs> and what I mean by this is that it's, it's important we clarify as the, the, the call of Christ, the message of the gospel, is very much a come-as-you-are kind of message. But it doesn't mean remain as you are. Come as you are, but don't remain as you are. The sinner who draws near to Jesus is like the patient who desperately seeks the physician's cure. And here's the thing. You don't go to the doctor to stay sick. You go to be cured. You go to receive treatment. You go to be changed from one condition to the next. And so you don't come to the doctor, but then hang on to the sickness, hang on to the sin as an aspect of your identity that you don't want to let go. You don't allow yourself to continue to be defined by the sickness, but you come to the doctor to receive newness of life and health and to be cured. Levi didn't say, well, I'm a tax collector Christian. <laughs> That's just who I am. Jesus, you know, he's only good and loving if he allows me to still remain identified as a tax collector. No, he left the tax booth behind and by God's gracious power made a break from his former way of life. You don't go to the doctor to stay sick. In another way, you don't also go to the doctor and sit around the lobby and that's it and continue to boast to all the other folks in the lobby, man, look how sick I am. Can you believe the doctor still wants to see me even as sick as I am? Uh, even as off-putting as my symptoms are or how little I actually follow through with my course of treatment ever, he still wants to see me? Wow, that's good news. <laughs> the sinners, church, who drew new to Jesus, they followed him out of one manner of life and out of one tragic story and lesser story into another manner of life, into a hopeful and better story. They didn't draw near and conclude, well, because he's welcomed me as I am, I'll stay as I am. They didn't strip down the good news of the gospel to a very welcoming waiting room. <laughs> That's so good news. The waiting room is awesome here, the gospel waiting room. No, they sought the great physician's treatment and they rose out of their sickbed and they walked out of the hospital into newness of life. And so the upshot of this is that we need to ask ourselves, in our Christian lives, are we coming to the doctor in any kind of way, <laughs> living the Christian life, without receiving the cure? Are we saying and settling for a posture of, well, you know, that's just the way I am dealing with this sin here. <laughs> but Jesus still loves me, so that's good enough for me. <laughs> do we maybe do, like I, I've known some folks to do, we say something like, you know, uh, maybe not all of you here, but as an example, I love Jesus, I believe in him, I sure do, <laughs> but, you know, I just don't like people. That's just who I am. So I don't go to church and I neglect gathering with God's people. But Jesus still loves me. Isn't that good news? Is that the way to respond to the physician's grace? No. We shouldn't take our sin, our anger, our irritability, our anxiety, our constant critical attitude, our believing the worst about others, our consistent use of foul language even. We shouldn't take this sin and say, well, that's just the way I am and settle into it. 
We need to take our sin to Jesus and ask him to meet it with his transforming grace. We need to go to the doctor and receive the cure. We need to have a response to grace that includes the fruit of repentance. Number three, as we hear the call of Christ and the call of the gospel uh, go out, we need to be careful and mindful that we don't deny our diagnosis. Don't deny your diagnosis. And the upshot of this here is that (laughs) in the text, there are righteous people, but there aren't really righteous people, right? (laughs) The upshot here is that all the supposed righteous ones, the scribes that we are seeing who are critical of Christ and his welcoming of sinners, they're really actually, at heart, sick people who are refusing to go to the doctor. They believe that they are actually well enough capable of meeting God's righteous requirements in and of themselves. They're self-righteous. They don't think they need the saving. They don't need the grace. They don't need the forgiveness that Christ has come to bring like the sinners. And consequently, they cut themselves off from grace as they strive by their works, as they strive by their ability, as they strive by their own merit to enter into God's kingdom. They are sick people who never come to receive the cure. And the application of this for us would be not to cut ourselves off from grace, but if you've never believed before, to acknowledge your sin for what it is and to come to Christ for salvation. But also, even as a believer, we need to be mindful in our continuing struggle, right, with the remaining presence of sin in our life, that we continue to go to God for his grace, that we don't begin our Christian life by grace, but then strive to live according to works uh, as we follow Jesus thereafter. And really, to the extent that we continue to acknowledge the presence of sin in our life and call sin what it is and to own it as what it is, it's kind of the extent to which we'll receive God's grace as we're dealing with that sin. Even as believers, we can be reluctant to go to God with our sin. We can be shameful or embarrassed. We could be adverse to confessing it to others. Um, We may be giving into a, a subtle form of pride that doesn't seek God's grace to meet us in certain patterns of sinfulness that we're engaging in. But James chapter 4 verse 6 says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So would we as believers continue to humble ourselves and come to Jesus, just like we did at first, trusting that he'd receive us because of his grace and not our works, in order to find all the grace we need in those moments. And then finally, Number four, we need to respond to the gospel of fellowship with sinners by welcoming unbelievers into our lives. Number four, welcome unbelievers into your life. Like Levi, who was saved and then turned around and threw a party so that his friends could come and meet Jesus, uh, he was welcomed by Jesus and he responded by introducing his friends to Jesus. He opened up his home and he opened up his life so that Christ could come and enter into their lives. If fellowship with sinners, if that is the gospel, and Jesus came precisely to call sinners into his kingdom, we need to ask ourselves, how do our lives reflect the focus then of his mission? In other words, if Jesus extended his welcome to sinners of every kind, how can we be welcoming those who don't yet believe? And so ask yourself, how welcoming am I right now? Or even more concretely, who am I welcoming right now? Begin to ask these questions. That is, 
Are you sharing your life with any unbelievers in such a way that they would have a window into your life with Jesus, into the fellowship that you have with him? Are you spending time with those who are unbelievers, who are unchurched, um, whose lives look very different from yours, may look very uh, different from the life of Christ? Are you spending time with people like this? (laughs) Not so that they'd see your righteousness and be impressed by you, (laughs) but so that they would see Jesus through you and the way in which you rest in him and his grace, the way in which you go to him humbly, and the way in which you find your joy in him. Are you living life with those who don't yet know Jesus in such a way that they could see Jesus, just like Levi was doing? And next, consider, how could I welcome into my life uh, these folks, these unbelievers, those around me I know who don't know Jesus? How could I welcome them into my life so that they would see Jesus in the welcome he extends to sinners? And so, is there someone even now who comes to mind? Is there a coworker that you have? Is there a neighbor uh, nearby, an acquaintance of yours that you share common interests with, that you could spend some time with uh, intentionally uh, together? Very simply, and just like uh, Levi gives us a great example here, is there anyone you can eat with? <laughs> anyone you can respond very practically to the truth of the gospel by having a meal together with? Before the month's over, before the end of August, would we take up the challenge to spend some time with, to have one meal with a coworker, um, and have lunch with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, to invite an unbelieving neighbor into our home, to do something with someone where we get around the table so that through us, that person might come to one day be sitting around Christ's table as they gather with us in the church and as they feast with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ comes and brings his kingdom in in full. Respond to the gospel of the welcome of sinners by having a meal with someone this month. Church, would we boldly open up ourselves to any and to all of our neighbors, knowing that all that Jesus requires is for them to feel their need for him? Would we respond to the good news that the only ones who are qualified to enter into the kingdom are those who know they are not, by moving toward any and all of our unbelieving neighbors with the confidence that should they come to Jesus, he will never, ever cast them out. Let's pray.